If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Will you pray with me? Holy One, have you seen the leaves? We haven't come up with a true replication of the hue we call a blaze. But of course, this is one of the ways you call out to us, filling us with wonder. Halloween is still almost two weeks away, but the little ones are starting to wear their costumes everywhere. Yesterday, a miniature Wonder Woman and a tiny Spider-Man were protecting the cereal aisle. They zigged and zagged between grocery carts with the kind of agility only possible when one's bones are still part rubber. (laughs) Their delighted squeals warned us all of the danger lurking behind the instant oatmeal. We stopped and stared at them, the rest of us, who just minutes before were trying to get in and out of the store as quickly as possible, too busy to look anyone in the eye, with more errands to run and arguments to win. But we just couldn't help it. Their play, their laughing, their delight, setting our hearts ablaze. But of course, they too are how you call out to us. Caped miracles, these little ones their greatest superpower, the ability to stop us in our tracks and fill us with wonder. Oh God, that we would remember that they are ours, every single one of them. Our job is to make a world fit for them, along with the ones making their way here from way down south, hoping for refuge, and the ones huddling in cities destroyed by bombs sold to their country by our country, and the ones right here who in the land of plenty still don't have clean drinking water. May these wonders fill us with urgency, Holy One, lest the hour grow too late and the only wonder our children are left with is why we did nothing. We pray in the name of our teacher Jesus, the one who said, hinder not the little children come unto me. Amen. Because your pastors love you so much, for the second week in a row, our scripture comes from the book of Job. This week, chapter 38, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? 
or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy. Here ends this reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. This morning I want to do something uh, different. I want to preach a sort of continuation sermon built on Lori's sermon last Sunday. Not, not a correction, mind you, or even a second opinion, but a sequel. She'd already laid the groundwork for what happened to Job, and I want to take advantage of that and keep the conversation going, especially with regard to Job's complaint against God. You all might not know this, but since Lori and I started sharing preaching responsibilities and alternating most Sundays, we've not been able to link sermons together as a single preacher might in what is called a sermon series. That is, several sermons spread out over several weeks connected by a common theme or idea. What we have to say, we need to say in a single sermon and then move on. But I really enjoyed last Sunday's sermon. I found it insightful. And it got me to thinking more about the issues that Lori raised, especially the anti-gospel of the happyologists and the well-intentioned but very harmful things we often say to those who, who suffer and are legitimately angry. Things like, God needed your loved one more than you do, or she's in a better place, or my favorite, your child has gone to heaven early to be with the angels. The truth is our complaints against God have not changed all that much. Job has suffered the loss of everything that matters to him. He has a right to be angry, and his friends are absolutely no help. They remind me a lot of clergy I know who give righteous advice to people whose suffering they do not even comprehend, including my least favorite, fake it until you make it. I just wish we could stop saying that. I'm also trying to write a book about God, as you all know, and I am as anxious to get it finished as you may be for me to stop talking about it. <laughs> but I'm, I'm immersed in this impossible subject matter every day, and so as I listened to the sermon last Sunday, it reminded me we're still dealing with Job's questions, and some of us are still deeply dissatisfied with the answers. The lectionary gives us a second chance this morning to hear from Job, this time near the end of a book that really should be read straight through from start to finish like a novella and not in little tiny chunks on Sunday morning. But you already know what happened to Job because Lori explained it all last Sunday. If you were not here, well, I'm not going to repeat it. You should come to church more often. <laughs> there's, there's good stuff happening here, but I digress. Suffice it to say, Job is a pawn in a wager between God and Satan about what will happen when even a righteous man loses everything and then assumes that God has either engineered his suffering or at least not prevented it. Because if faith no, pays no tangible earthly benefits, like health, wealth, and a big family for starters, then what's the good of it? If faith is not a transaction, believe this, get that, then why not just sleep in on Sunday morning? As the book progresses, Job literally takes God to court. He is suing God, if you will, for the ultimate in pain and suffering. He wants answers, we all do. 
and he has the right to be angry. And we can relate to this because we just learned the terrible truth about what happened to Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. They cut off his fingers, the fingers that wrote the columns that told the truth about oppression in the Arab world. And they probably did this before they killed, beheaded, and dismembered him. So where was God? The eternal question, where is God? And the only answer that makes sense to me is that God is exactly where God has always been, and that is not in the suffering prevention business. It has long been a staple of Western theological traditions that God intervenes directly in human affairs. Well, if that's true, then God's got some explaining to do. If not, then we've got some explaining to do. To keep the suffering of the present moment in perspective, however, I think it would be good for us to remember that the world was more peaceful and less violent in the past year than at any time in human history. You think, well, how can that be? Mass shootings, suicides, opioid addictions, the Middle East in crisis, and when you read some astonishing fact like this one, since 1968, we've killed more people with guns in the U.S. than died in all the U.S. wars combined. It's easy to think, well, the end is near. And there's still famine and pestilence around the world, and yet the actual number of people suffering from hunger around the world has been cut in half since the 1960s. It can feel like the world is burning down from violence and suffering, but there is less suffering and violence now than at any time in human history. 2017 was the least violent year on record on planet Earth. Now, of course, this doesn't make our suffering or Job's suffering any less legitimate or his complaint any less justified, but we may be looking for answers in all the wrong places. Job decides to question God because he's a righteous man and does not deserve his suffering. His cross-examination is not an insult to God. It shows Job's ultimate respect for God. Job is exhibit A of the good person that bad things happen to, and he just wants to know why. God does not answer in anger, like, say, the Wizard of Oz, which, by the way, is a remarkably accurate portrait of our mythical view of God, all smoke and mirrors. I am Oz, the great and powerful. Who are you? Who are you? Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said, come back tomorrow. And also, by the way, you may remember Oz doesn't give the scarecrow, the lion, or the tin man anything they don't already possess. All they need is to be told that they possess it. But Oz doesn't do that. The professor from Kansas does that, but I digress again. God answers Job this way. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Which is not unlike saying, who do you think you are anyway to question me? I am the great and powerful Yahweh. God continues, gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you shall declare to me. Did you hear that? Like a man. Did God just call Job a sissy? I mean, 
that sounded like man up, shut up, and listen up. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, that's God being sarcastic, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Now, if this is a trial, then I imagine God as the accused saying to Job the defendant in his closing argument, I give you Job, gesturing across the courtroom, cosmic courtroom, mere mortal, asking for explanations from from me, a.k.a. I am who I am, or in the popular vernacular, your arms are too short to box with God. Now, before we go any further, this would be the right time for me to say something I believe beyond doubt or reservation, namely, none of us, not a single one of us, has any idea what we're talking about when we talk about God. As the Tao puts it, when you think you know, that is when you do not know, but when you know that you do not know, that is when you know. But I don't think Job is questioning God because he presumes to know God. I think his complaint comes from his religious tradition, one that attributes all events to the hand of God. And so he cannot understand why, if that's true, there's so much undeserved suffering in the world. A God who acts is by definition a God who is responsible for not acting. And that is why all theology since the Holocaust must finally face the truth about a God who does not intervene despite the outpouring of prayers from those death camps to save us from ourselves. So just to be clear, I don't think Job is saying he, he knows God. Rather, Job is complaining about a God that other people say they know, who know nothing. If you went to seminary, or even if you didn't, you may know about the so-called omnis. The omnis, these are theological terms we created to describe God. There's omnipotent, which means all-powerful. There is omniscient, which means all-knowing. There is omnipresent, which means in all places at once. And often a fourth is added, omnibenevolent, which means a God who is all loving and just. Which means if all these are true, then Houston, we have a God problem. If God knows everything, can do anything, and is both everywhere at once, and all loving all the time, then why is the world the way it is? We even have a theological term for this. It's called theodicy, the problem of evil. It leads me to wonder which of the omnis we might have gotten wrong. Perhaps God is not really omniscient, so God doesn't necessarily know about the problem. Or perhaps God is not really omnipotent, so he knows but can't do anything about it. Or perhaps God is not really omnipresent, so God's away from his desk in some other part of the universe helping others. Or, and this might bother us the most, God is not really omnibenevolent, not all-loving. And so God either lets bad things happen to good people as well as bad people, 
or God deliberately causes or permits suffering to teach us all a lesson, lest the divine rod be spared, spoiling the children who need tough love. This is, of course, the dominant theology of Christian fundamentalism. It's why Jesus had to suffer. They call this muscular Christianity. Really? I mean, that sounds not so vaguely like an earlier command to, quote, gird up your loins like a man, right? Which brings me to the title of the sermon, which is not coincidentally uh, the title of the book I'm writing, Falling Off the Ceiling. My voice just left for a little bit, but it's coming back. (laughs) Falling Off the Ceiling. The subtitle is The Death of Michelangelo's God and the Rebirth of Wonder. Michelangelo's God is a reference to his fresco on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, where God is pictured as a bearded, white, European man reaching down to try to make contact with Adam, another white, though clean-shaven, European man, in a depiction of not only the separation of humans from God, but also a celebration of cosmic white maleness. Cosmic white maleness, it's everywhere. This fresco, which is the iconic image of God in the Western world, the most familiar image of all, shows a white-haired but surprisingly buff God (laughs) reaching down to a reluctant and reclining Adam, and their fingers not quite touching, but what people seldom see is that under God's arm is a woman, probably Eve, that God is about to give to Adam as a gift i.e. something Adam will be pleased by since the animals just didn't do it for him. She's a gift, a a creature he will essentially own. Now you may be thinking, well, it's a metaphor, Robin, and since all language about God, even visual language, only points to God but does not mean to be taken literally, I would say, yes, yes, I love metaphors. I mean, I love metaphors. To be all Star Warsy about it, metaphors be with you. But here's the problem. When it comes to images, research shows that they have a staying power. They have a staying power greater than language. That is, an image will remain lodged in the soul long after the mind has reasoned its way to other more abstract ideas. That is, an image will only be dislodged by another image, by a different image. Intellectually, we may have moved on from the sky god, but existentially, God is still a bearded white male for most people in the Western world. We've got the pronouns to prove it. And we have a Me Too movement to remind us that it's about power, male power. So how can there be gender equality in the world when the ultimate symbol of divine power is white and male? How can there ever be justice in the world when despite our claims to be made in the image of God, we so often make God in our own image? If history is written by the winners, then is theology written by the patriarchy who are also the winners? No wonder the church is dying. I think God's fallen off the ceiling. 
In the introduction to the book, I tell a story of a night watchman working at the Vatican. He's doing the night shift at the Sistine Chapel, and he hears a crashing sound in the middle of the night. He runs into the room to discover a pile of broken plaster on the floor, the remains of the world's most famous fresco, the creation of Adam. The sky god and his favorite son are now in a million pieces on the floor. Meanwhile, a group of frantic priests, still in their pajamas, all a tither, come running into the room and demand to know what happened. God's fallen off the ceiling, they say, as if perhaps the night watchman is to blame. He stares at the pile of plaster and says, I didn't do it. Perhaps, I don't know, he was tired of being up there. Because, I mean, all of us are down here. Meanwhile, if you continue reading Job past our text for the morning, you will see that not only does God remind Job that he has no idea what he's talking about or who he's talking to, but there is more than just suffering in the world. There's also astonishing beauty. Some of the poetry that follows this text about what's beautiful in creation is sublime. But it does constitute a very strange answer from God when you think about it. God does not deny the suffering or, or even try to explain it. It comes to all of us. What God does say is that the world is also full of beauty and hope, which raises the old philosophical argument about whether it would be possible to know one without the other. I mean, if you think suffering is hard to explain, try explaining beauty. Like suffering, it can only be experienced, and then it changes us. What's more, wealth cannot protect us from suffering, and poverty cannot deprive us of beauty. Human existence is permeated with both, and we need to start taking responsibility for the suffering we cause, as well as for the beauty we ignore. Obviously, some suffering is without moral dimension at all. So, for example, the edge of the cliff does not care if you're a good person or a bad person when you step over it. Or as a friend of mine put it, don't jump out of the window of a high-rise thinking you can fly and then blame the pavement on God. There are accidents in the world, tragic accidents, and then there is the suffering we cause, or as the old preacher put it, a lot of human misery is caused by miserable human beings. We injected trillions of gallons of fracking fluid into the red Oklahoma earth because that's the cheapest way to get rid of it. We cracked the earth and then we flooded it and that toxic stew lubricated the fault lines and now we have earthquakes. Don't blame God for that. Don't blame God. Monster hurricanes, apocalyptic weather, don't call that an act of God like the insurance companies do. Tell the truth, it's an act of greed. We're killing our own mother. The national debt, the national debt threatens our future. So what are you gonna do, pray about it? Ask God to just take care of it, grow the economy? How about you stop cutting taxes for the rich so you can make deeper cuts to social programs for the poor? Idolatry, thy name is reality TV, white privilege, divide and conquer, and all those dog whistles of racism. That's not God's fault, that's our fault. 
It's always amazing to me that conservatives are so hot on personal responsibility, but so helpless when it comes to their view of religion. The scriptures say we are to help orphans and widows in their distress, not create orphans and widows at the border through family separation. Let's do more than just pray about that, shall we? And yet, and yet, and yet, lest we forget, the world is also full of beauty, bravery, sacrifice, compassion, heroism, unselfish dedication to a higher love. Bring me your higher love. It's October in Oklahoma. Pay attention. Leaves are pirouetting to the ground. The sounds of early morning marching band practice are floating over your back fence. Your dog is more loyal than any politician you know. <laughs> and people are still falling in love and doing the best they can to make and keep promises. And music, we've still got music. If we've got music, there's hope. And where is God? Not in heaven on a throne, but shot through the beauty of the world and as constant as returning love for love in the luminous web. You touch the web anywhere, it vibrates everywhere. We act, we make choices, we choose the ways of life or the ways of death, and then the spirit links all things to all things and has the last word. You can depend on this, you can have faith in this, not in the God we've created in our own human image, but in the undivided unity in creation itself. Maybe God is not pulling the strings. Maybe God is the string. By the end of the book, uh, in, we see a change. By the end of the book of Job, things are different. At the beginning, Job and God are far removed from one another. God in his heavenly court, a distant observer, considering his servant Job from afar. A kind of distant provider showering wealth and blessings on him. God is not only inconceivable to Job, but lives at an inconceivable distance from Job. God is even said to be suspicious of Satan because the adversary spends so much time traveling the earthly lands and getting to know the humans close up. Yet, by the end of the book, the divine courtroom has been replaced by an earthly one where Job and God can argue and the picture we see is not of a remote being, but of an intimate presence visible in every corner of the earth from the tiniest creature to the most massive ones. God is in Betty's diner. Centuries before quantum physics revealed a universe that is more like a field than like a giant clock, where as Barbara Brown Taylor put it, every action, no matter how insignificant, changes something which changes something else, which changes everything, meaning that, in her words, if you pick up a crying baby at just the right moment, he may turn out to be a teacher instead of a tyrant. Or if you sneeze twice facing north, someone may lose a pool game on the planet Mars. God is no longer above humanity, but alongside it, so much so that Job can say, before I had only heard about God, now I have seen God all mixed up in the suffering and the beauty, neither rewarding us nor punishing us. God just is the ground of being, as Paul Tillich put it. And later in his life, he said, 
being itself. Not a God of the heights, but a God of the depths. Or you could just say, God fell off the ceiling. I mean, that works better for me, mere mortal that I am. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.